Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Uh, Speaking of awards, I think uh, the Rhinelander High School swim team, which several of our young men are on one sectionals yesterday, and so they're on to state, and so congrats. We are in the book of Zephaniah. Uh, It's called, it's part of what was typically called the minor prophets, not because it's of minor significance or less significance, just because it's smaller as compared to the major prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah. So it's pretty close to the New Testament. Zephaniah, right after the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk, uh, page 788. So we are in a book where God has sent a preacher to preach and tell the people that he knows very well where they're wrong and of God's judgment and wrath against them. Zephaniah does this first by speaking directly to God's people, to the church in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, for their sin. And then in chapter 2, he'll turn and speak to the nation surrounding them. And this is showing that God is judge of the whole world. He's not just a national deity or just a tribal small g God. He's God of all the earth. But judgment always starts with the household of God. So the main virtue, the main response of faith that you should have to this preaching is to learn to fear God. That's what this is for. So I'll be asking you frequently, and I urge you to think of it, why don't you fear God? Why don't you, why don't we fear God? So that's what we want God to do in us, to teach us to tremble before Him in His Word. I'm going to read uh, chapter 1, verses 7 to 18. Be silent. The word in Hebrew there is hush. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. 
For all the traders are no more. All who will out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they'll not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord and the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Let's ask God's help. God, you say in your word that blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. You pronounce a blessing on those who keep your testimonies and seek you with their whole heart, who do no wrong but walk in your ways. God, who is like that? Teach us to fear you, please. Give us a diligence to keep your commands and be steadfast in your statutes so that we'll not be put to shame. God, teach us to praise you with an upright heart and learn your righteous rules. Do not forsake us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have this command right at the front to hush to keep quiet, to hold your peace. As I said in the time of confession, this is literally about coming before God without complaint, without uh, question. Parents, you understand this, right? It would be... It, this is not hyperbole like it would be the greatest gift for a parent if the kids just said okay and so how much more god now that doesn't mean literally quiet but metaphorically it is a submission to god it is a humble quietness before him why well, in this text, it's because of his judgment. The day of the Lord is near. So you see that word day repeated again and again in this text. It is supposed to work in us an awakening because of our proclivity, our inclination to do what it says at the end of verse 12. Just kind of be apathetic. There's no judgment. There's no consequence. 
It's not coming yet. Not me. Not now. We just shove it away. And so God is using this word day. He's raising the temperature. The great day of the Lord is near. It's hastening fast. Now in this time, in Zephaniah's day, if you remember, this is the people of Judah. This is the line of David. God has been very patient with them. They have had 20 kings total in their time. This is like number 16. Most of the kings that came before them were awful, wicked, terrible men. They've had a few bright spots. But now what God is saying to them is, through Zephaniah, I told you when we entered into covenant, when I brought you out of Egypt, and you solemnly declared, like in a wedding, I will keep these vows because of your grace, and you refuse, I'll judge you. I'll bring my wrath upon you. And God is declaring very solemnly, very frankly, that that day is coming like now. And it did. Within this generation, God's judgment through Babylon fell. The temple was destroyed. The people deported. God's judgment wasn't... Um, you know, far off. It was right there. And it was an awful day. And so the response is silence. The response is to humble ourselves without question, without complaint, and accept from God's hand His judgment against sin. Because He is God. Over and over and over again in this text, God highlights that He is the one who is doing this. The day of the Lord. I will punish in verse 8. Verse 9, I will punish everyone. Verse 12, I will search Jerusalem. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord. Verse 17, I will bring distress. Verse 18, it is the fire of His jealousy. And He will make a full and sudden end of all the inhabitants of the earth. So it just piles up one upon another this declaration that this is God Himself who is doing this. Why? Why is that emphasized so strongly and repeated so often? Do you know yourself well enough to answer that question? Why does God make it very plain that He Himself will do this repeatedly? Because you fashion a God according to your tastes. And the God you fashion according to your taste will never judge your sin. We form a God who's permissive. We form a God that would never, ever, ever 
be so undignified as to actually bring judgment like this. And so we have delusions. We deceive ourselves. And again and again and again, God is declaring, I myself am going to do this. So right away, do you have faith that this is your God? Has this God changed? Is he the same today, yesterday, today, and tomorrow? Is this God of this kind of wrath and judgment your God? If so, can't you hush? Can't you be silent? Can't you submit yourself to His Word? One of the enjoyments of the calling of a pastor is to answer people's question. questions. There's never been a shortage in my pastoral ministry of questions. <laughs> it is enjoyable to have people who are reading and studying the Bible and ask you questions. And uh, it is good, in a sense, to be inquisitive and sincerely want to know what the truth is in a certain passage. But it's also uh, a difficulty because a lot of, uh, sometimes those questions are actually questioning God. They're not a question about the meaning. They're a question of um, wanting it to be different than what God said. We, we don't know ourselves well enough to know that we have so perverse hearts that we will not accept God's truth in His Word as it stands. We don't have submissive hearts. We don't have a posture of humility to what God has written in His Word. In one sense, it'd be way better if you had like some anger at it. But a lot of times, we're like verse 12. We're just apathetic. We don't have a response much of anything to God's Word. And so mankind constantly rails against God. This is the first sin in the Bible, isn't it? Did God say? We're not like Eve, are we? I mean, that's Eve. Not people at Pine Grove Community Church. We're like Mary. Every time God says something, we just simply say, may it be to me as you've said, God. 
You're more like Mary, aren't you? I'm so glad to pastor a church full of Marys. It's such a delight. (laughs) Why do you think you can question God? Why do you think you can demand he say things differently? Now, the, um, the thing about the word silence, have you ever met somebody who's silently rebellious? Your children ever like that? They're quiet, but you can just see it. You can, you can just see the bubbling, rebellious obstinacy within your child's silence. Maybe you do this at work with your supervisor. You listen, but you make it really clear with a certain kind of silence that you have no submission at all. Wives can do this to their husbands. There can be, in a woman's eyes, hell fire in silent submission. (laughs) So why are we like this? Well, because... We, we're God. God is not God. So God is making very plain that he is a God of judgment. He is a God of wrath. He is a God of holy hatred against our sins. Now it is true that there is much to know about God. There is... There are lots of attributes, if you will, that we could talk about of God. We can talk of God's love. We can talk of God's wisdom. We can speak of God's infinite knowledge. We can speak of God's unchangeable nature. We can speak of God's power. We can speak of God's wrath. His justice, His holiness. That's what we're talking about in these sermons. God is a judge. God is a great warrior. All throughout Scripture, isn't He? And what we are wanting for ourselves in these verses is to learn to fear Him. To learn to hate our sin as we see God in His righteous, perfect justice hates our sin. Maybe we could do it this way. Why did God give you eyes? What are your eyes for? 
I thought this would be applicable because I figured you all have them. And this would like be no problem for you to relate to. You all have eyes. What for? Yeah, man, not just to see. To look on things that God has made, to read the words that God has spoken, and to learn to praise Him and thank Him and delight in what your eyes can see. So what, in light of that God-given purpose who gave you those eyes and all of the wiring that connects to your brain that you somehow mysteriously, this whole thing works, what did you use them for this morning? Guys, did you look at a female lustfully with those eyes today? Gals, did you look at another woman and judge her harshly for this or that color or loose hair? You remember King David? God gave him eyes. With one look on a woman, you see the misery that brought to his family and to the kingdom that he rules over, which is what we're talking about in Zephaniah with one look. What we're seeing in Zephaniah is downstream of that misuse of his eyes. Is God right to judge us from the misuse of our eyes? God ready to judge David. The death of a child, the rebellion of a son, the folly of Solomon and the division of the kingdom, all is a result of a look with his eyes. Is that right of God? Does God have that right? That's what we're getting at in this text. Do you view God as the God who has the right does he have the right to do with you as he pleases? Parents, does God have the right to do with your children as he pleases? Does God have the right to do with your kidneys as he pleases? Hush. Silence. God is God. That's what we are to learn when we come to hear the preaching of God's Word. We often do very foolish things, such as reading Zephaniah and then thinking to ourselves, well, thank God Jesus came. We don't have this kind of fear of God anymore. Would you turn 
to Hebrews chapter 10. Please. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. See, one of the ways that we are to receive the minor prophets in these pronouncements of God's judgment is that we might fear God and hate our sin and turn from Him because we fear God's judgment. We receive it as a warning. This is on page 1007 in those black Bibles in the seats in front of you. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do you think? will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, that's not evangelism there. It's not talking to unbelievers there. It's talking to us who call on the name of Jesus for salvation. Look at carefully the language in verse 30, please. For we know him. We, you, we know God. We know him. Who do we, what do we know of him? What is it saying we know of him here? That he is the God who says to you, to us, not to unbelievers. Not just to Democrats. <laughs> to you. I know you who says vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. He's saying to us, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What is he aiming at in this warning? What is he aiming at in this judgment language? He's aiming at those who continue to sin deliberately who go on in sin against conscience, against God's Word, willfully. But because this is so neglected in our day, and because you grew up in churches that so neglected this, you have no idea what to do with it. Sounds odd to your ears. Because all you've heard about God your entire life is He's forgiving and kind and don't worry about it. Don't be so hard on yourself. Forgive yourself. Jesus died. There's, there's no judgment anymore. There's only grace. There's an umbrella of grace. And so all you've heard your entire life is 
God doesn't judge. God forgives. God doesn't pour out wrath. He only welcomes. But that's true though, right? It is true God forgives. It is true God is gracious. It is true. God is incredibly merciful. Provided we see ourselves as needing mercy. Provided we see ourselves as deserving of God's wrath and fleeing from it to Him. I think much of the church is just given to maintaining people's self-esteem. I think when we talk about God's grace, we have no idea what we're talking about. We act as untrained psychologists who can't stand people to experience any guilt, any negative feelings over actual ongoing sin in their lives, and so immediately speak peace, 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 don't feel bad, 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 and yet they just go on in their sin without any fear. John Owen speaks of this. He says, have you given up? Have you stopped? Have you removed the sin that gets you into so much trouble with God? Will you speak peace to that sin when you still don't hate that sin and are disgusted by it? It's like putting ba a band-aid on gangrene. We're to learn to hate our sin. And we're to learn to hate our sin as we read things in Zephaniah that see how much God hates our sin. Look at the language in verse 17. I know sometimes you get frustrated with my language here. Though I think it's PG most of the time. Look at God's language here. I will bring distress on mankind so they walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. What? Their blood will be poured out like the dust. This is what a preacher said to his congregation one Sunday morning back in Zephaniah's day. It's creating a visual in your mind. Dust is useless. It's a nuisance. It's... This was my job for my dad. When I was young, soup to shop, 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 soup to shop. Every day, hate soup to shop. One day, I threw the beam and broke the handles. I wouldn't have to soup to shop. The hardware store just down the street, so said, "Go walk down there and get a new handle." Soup to shop. So God is communicating. His abhorrence of our sins such that he views the shedding of the blood of those among God's people who go on deliberately sinning like dust. Their blood's like dust. It's nothing to him. They're flesh like dung. Now, English translators want to remain, uh, maintain a certain level of respectability, that word there is literally turd. 
all the little boys, right? This is the level of abhorrence God has at our sin, at your sin, at my sin. Do you hate your sin? That's what we're learning here. Now, it's true, when you see your sin as it is, and you learn to cry out before God, have mercy on me, a sinner, we go to Christ. We do flee from his anger and wrath to his son, who took his wrath for us in our place for his sin. And... The trait, the virtue that it burns in your lives is a silent gratefulness that God would have mercy on somebody like you. There's so much freedom of seeing yourself as not a good person. This is the problem we have. You are constantly surprised at how bad you are because you do not believe the Bible's teaching of how sinful you are. You have this warped view of yourself as a good little person, a good little boy, a good little girl. And last week when I told you that you can have a conversation with somebody where you're as sweet as honey, and in your mind you are full of bitter venom, just tearing that person apart. That's who you are. Without God's grace. That's what you're like. Don't be so surprised. This is the great gift of God in having children. You come face to face with how miserably wicked you are. How selfish you are. How quick you can get angry at the, mind, the smallest inconvenience, the littlest soul. Children do dumb things. I mean, they do. And you forget that you did that too. I did some of the dumbest things when I was a kid. A pastor lived on our block. When I was six, I went riding on my tricycle naked past his house before church on Sunday morning. And you as a parent get to see how self-centered you are at the little inconveniences of children created in God's image that the Lord himself welcomed on his knee. It's a great gift of God. So let me talk to, in this text, he kind of categorizes groups of people. He speaks in verse 8 against um, the ruling class. Now we know our nation's rulers are despicable. They are through and through corrupt and wicked. Our culture, particularly our rulers, despise life. They despise the goodness of God making us male and female. They worship the cult of perverse sexuality and LGBTQ wickedness. God will judge them unless they repent. 
It's true. Now, any of you who are in civil authority ought to fear God. Oddly, in verse 8, he mentions, I'll punish the officials, the king's sons, and then he says, and all who array, or all who dress themselves in foreign dress, foreign clothing. I don't need to point this out because sometimes Christians say, God doesn't care about what I wear. <laughs> don't you hear yourself in verse 12? The Lord won't do good, nor will he do ill. Isn't that just that? Does God care what you wear? Well, yeah. Why? Well, what's going on with them wearing foreign dress? This isn't racism here. What, what's the deal? It's that they love the world and they want to make sure that they look like the world to be accepted by the world. They don't care that their dress is pleasing to God so long as it's pleasing to the world. And so that'd be helpful for you, wouldn't it? Why do you wear what you wear? Wouldn't that be good? Do you dress to reveal or dress to conceal? Are you modest? Does any guy have to use his imagination at all to know the shape of your body? Guys, do you like to show off your pecs? We should fear the Lord in our dress and be mainly concerned that it's pleasing to him. Verses 11, 13, and 18 are judgment against the rich. O inhabitants of Mordor, Mordor was a part of Jerusalem where the merchants ruled. The, the rich plied their wares. They build nice houses. They plant rich vineyards. Verse 18, they have a lot of wealth that they think that can deliver them from God's wrath. Do not put your hope in your money. It is not a God. Use what God has given you to care for others. Do look on the wealth and possessions that God has given you as only a gift from him. He can take them as quickly as he's given them. Those who are rich and wealthy should fear God with their wealth. Another category we might say is this issue of timing. Again, at the end of verse 12, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. The day is hastening. We have this issue in ourselves where we just plan our lives as if God is beholden to my agenda. Now, it is good to make an agenda. It's good to make a plan. But we are taught constantly in Scripture to say, what should we say? If the Lord wills. Right, right. All of our plans are in his hands, our very lives. 
God is God. We should fear him with our time, with our days. Now, maybe a, a, a similar sin, but on the opposite end is that we are very lazy with the time God has given us. We don't work hard. God has given you time to use for his glory and the fear of him. Some of you really like to, if I were to preach a sermon about this being pre-tribulational, the church will be raptured out before this, and this is the wrath of God just before the millennium, and I really awoke your curiosity over the time in the Bible, you would love it. But I wish I could get you so excited to love somebody in this church and get to know somebody who's new and be a better husband, you know? We can get so excited about the details of the end-time timing, but not so excited about learning to invite the new person to Pine Grove over for a meal. And so, and so let's, let's take, take care of that. So in closing then, the, the simple reality is we just have to learn to fear God. I want you to assume something about yourself. Assume that you do not fear God like you should. Just start there. Assume that you do not fear Him as you should. That you belong to God, and that we will give an account before Him. Plead with Him to grow in a hatred of your sin, to be disgusted by it, to fill up your conscience with the wickedness and vileness of sin before a holy God that He sees. And yes, we do need Christ, don't we? And isn't it the greatest news in the world that God sent his wrath on his Son on the cross for those who truly call on his name? Let's pray. Father, help us to fear you. God, we do not fear you as we should. Our day is a day where there is no fear of God before our eyes. Our officials don't fear you. Those who supervise us at work don't fear you. Our parents don't fear you. Our children don't fear you. We do not fear you. Please forgive us of this. Teach us to fear you rightly. Give us faith to receive your son's words that we should not fear man. What can they do to us? We should not fear man who can merely kill our bodies, but we should fear you who can kill and cast into hell. 
God, give us faith to fear you. Yes, God, help us to love you. Help us to find simple delight in being your children. Help us to know the greater depths and heights of your love. But teach us to tremble at your words. These things are difficult for us to keep in mind, and yet they are true. And so give us the simple faith to silence ourselves and accept that we are to fear you. And so please teach it to us, oh God. Have mercy on us in this way. God, we do tremble before you. You are a great God. There is none like you. Your ways are beyond us. Your judgments are great deeps. How can we know them, O God? Give us the gift of silencing ourselves before you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the charge is this. In Matthew 21, Jesus gave a parable of two sons. He, the father told the son to go and do such and such, and one said, I, I, I won't. He refused, but then he went and did it. And then the other said, I will, and then he didn't go do it. Right, this is like an everyday occurrence. And they got it right. They said, which of the two did the world as father? Well, of course, the one who actually did it. And... You know, he's saying that because that's what we're like. We're often those who say, yeah, I'll do it, and then we, we won't. And Jesus said, I'm truly, truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. This is what we're talking about in Zephaniah. We have to learn the humility of learning that the first will be last, and the last will be first. Our problem, this is the charge, our problem is that we think so highly of ourselves. We do not compare ourselves to God's holiness and righteousness, but to our own standard that we always need and compare favorably to everybody else. So the charge is ask God to see, to see yourself, yourself rightly as a tax collector, as a, a sinner in need of his grace, as a prostitute spiritually in need of his grace, to, to, to have learned that humility, that sincere humility. May God answer and not be silent when you call to him and give you relief in all your distresses. May he be gracious to you and hear your prayers. May the Holy Spirit make you know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, and he hears us when we call. May you be angry, but not sin in your anger. May you ponder on your bed the Lord's power and goodness and be silent before him. May the Lord place more joy in your hearts, knowing that he gives us peace to lie down and sleep, because he is the Lord, our man, who makes us dwell in safety. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.